Melissa, thanks so much for coming on to chat with me today. I'm super excited to be connected to you. You are truly a very dynamic person who seemed to have a quite interesting career story from kind of, you know, being being an employee, working for others, but then also transitioning and, and doing your own thing at the moment. And I'm really curious to, to learn more about it. But give me a little brief of how did you come about to doing what you're doing today? <laughs> I mean, I kind of joke that I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And all around me, people had these very set career paths of being a doctor or a lawyer. But at every step of my career, I think I got to where I am today by just saying yes to opportunities. So to give the one minute version, I graduated with a music degree that never got used after a brief stint in the music industry. And then I worked my way through full-time roles in live corporate events before moving into tech startups, before moving into the online course space. And I would say most significantly was my recent role at Teachable, which is an online software company where you can create and sell your own online courses. And after working behind the scenes at Teachable for four years, I ended up leaving to become a product user. And so today my business, Wit & Wire, is an online course business where I help mostly entrepreneurs create and sell their own, um, not create and sell their own podcasts create and launch their own podcasts. And it's been really rewarding and really interesting to now be on the other side where I've been serving creators like me for years. And now I get to be in their shoes and kind of bring my expertise to even more women around the world. So it's been very rewarding, although not a path I could have ever seen coming. Hmm. And I love that. And I, and I think that's so important to point out because a lot of people kind of you know, they do a lot of thinking about what is it that they want to do, but maybe it's more about doing and actually trying and experimenting with things. So, so what, you know, I guess what, you know, was, where did you find the opportunities? Was it just kind of, are you, were you always kind of a person who just was like a go-getter and you have no problem meeting people or did it come like, what, did it come naturally to you? Or did you actually have to go and like make an effort to go and, 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 and explore these different areas? Like, how did you go about it? Whenever I had a full-time position, I would say I'm a quiet leader. I always just wanted to listen and be helpful. So no matter what company I worked for, I always became a go-to person for different things. When it was event production, I became the go-to Excel expert, the go-to person who knew how to make operations run more smoothly. And I've always been a producer, the kind of person who is running things behind the scenes, making sure that everything is going smoothly. And so quickly you become... I think invaluable to the right teams because you are elevating the work that they're doing by clearing all the obstacles, preventing them from being their best creative selves. And so I think the, the tie throughout my whole career has just been trying to be helpful and the more help you can provide, I think the more opportunities come your way. It's just a matter of knowing what to say yes to. So even when I was working full-time, I was also teaching here in New York at General Assembly, I was teaching Excel and data analytics classes and people came up to me after class and they asked, oh, do you offer tutoring? And I didn't, but I said, oh, sure. Let me get back to you with my rates. And I took their email address and went home. I Googled rates and I got back to them with a proposal the next day and I was in business. And then same thing when somebody asked if I did business consulting, I said, of course, let me get back to you tomorrow with a proposal. And so I think that's a big misconception that when you look at a fully founded business, somebody who's a little bit further along, it looks like they had that idea the whole time. But I think what I've done is just be open to opportunities and just seeing how they've evolved. Mm. Yeah, that, that's so spot on. And, and I think it's just having that courage to be like, I can do this, I can try it and not not being afraid to, to try. So, but did you, did you ever have a moment like, 
you know, like, oh, should I do this? Should I not do this? Or you're just pretty like, like, no, let, I'm, I'm just going to do it. Or did you have any mental game that you were playing with yourself to try to actually put yourself out of that comfort zone? I think we all wonder who am I to take on this role, especially if you've never done it before. Mm-hmm. Like when somebody asked me if I did business consulting and they wanted a pretty high level project, I had a lot of internal questions around, are they sure? Like I was young, I was 25. I was like, do they really want to hire me to yeah. consult on this 200 person company? But something that I decided early on is that I would let other people tell me no instead of ruling myself out. And so when you go into it with the mindset of the worst thing that can happen is a no, I think that makes it seem a little bit less scary. So I just always had this positive outlook where if I put myself out there and they said, yes, it would work out and it would be great. And I would learn something. And if not, then I would find a different opportunity in the future. I love it. That's that, that's golden advice. Like, I mean, really, what's the worst that will happen? Somebody will say no. Oh, well, moving on. Right. Exactly. We're yeah. so afraid of hearing no, but I think we tell ourselves no preemptively too much. So if you play out the worst case scenario in your mind, I think you'll find that it's not nearly so bad. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, that, 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 that's so spot on. I think that a lot of times we're just our own blockers to, to, to success essentially. And a lot of times we put ourselves in these boxes and if we don't, you know, if we don't see ourselves outside of it, uh, it's hard to move forward. And it's, I was talking to actually, um, to another entrepreneur, uh, Josh Little, he's the founder of Bali and he's successfully kind of launched four businesses and et cetera. And he was saying, he was like, Elena, I had to go through, through so much, um, so many different ideas and so many experiments. He went through like 12 different ideas before he actually got to each of his successful businesses. And he's like, if I didn't believe in myself and if I didn't, if I cared too much about, you know, what the, the outcome would be, I would never do it, you know? So I think it's, I think it's just, that's, that's one thing I've noticed about individuals like yourself. It's just this curiosity and willingness to try. And, and even if you, you don't succeed, it's just that, that, that courage is, um, is essential. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's really good. Um, it's always nice to hear this and I love that. Um, so, and is there anything that you yourself as an individual, uh, do in terms of day-to-day, like your routines, your habits, because it is, I'm sure it's very stressful to, to as much as you enjoy the process and all that. I know entrepreneurship can be stressful and having to kind of be the go-getter and the hustler, but is there anything in your day-to-day that you do that is helpful to you to maintain that, like, you know, managing your energy? It is tough. Something I noticed that's very different about running my own business is that you have so many ideas about what you want to do. But for me, I'm a solopreneur. I do have some contractor support, but it's largely just me doing the business. And so no matter how big my ideas are, I, the one woman team can't possibly do all of them at once. And it's very different from working at a full-time role, because even if you're feeling really invested in that company, as I did, especially at Teachable, I really enjoyed working there there's still a different separation where it's not your thing. And you also know that there's a team of so many more people working where it doesn't feel like the weight of the whole company is on your shoulders. And so I think for me, something that helps me stay not only on track and focused, but also not so overwhelmed and overworking overworking myself to the ground is that I do start the week off with a review where I take a look and I see what are all the things that I had planned to do this week and ask myself, is this realistic? And then I reallocate work for that week or the next. And then I also do a monthly and a quarterly review. And I think people would be surprised to hear that I don't have a huge five-year plan, a one-year plan. Like I have rough sense of rough revenue targets. And I have a rough sense of what I would like my life plus the business to look like. 
But I think if I stay too narrow, where I say, this is exactly what I want it to look like with exactly this many sales and these exact courses, then it leaves you closed-minded to what could evolve. And the online business industry that I'm in is rapidly changing. So I think it's to my advantage to adapt and to stay open. So that's why I like to do the weekly review is mostly about a task level assignment. The monthly is about strategic decisions, like what kind of content I want to focus on or what messages I want to put out there. And then the quarterly review is bigger picture. What's working in my business? What strategies have I seen now for a couple months or longer that I can assess? What should I stop, start and continue doing? And then I just go from there. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the not planning far ahead um, with my co-founder and I were the same way. We said, listen, what are we going to do today? Because we've realized like over the last three years, it's just like continuous pivoting. Like we're always, you know, whatever plans we have, we have to pivot and then like things happen and, you know, et cetera. So, um, so I love that. And it definitely requires a certain level of discipline and consistency to do your own thing. Um, like, you know, when I, when, when I was working for you know, employers, it's, you know, you do have that team and you have a big brand right behind you. And it's like, people are willing to talk to you, but then when you are your own brand or you're creating a brand, it's like a majority of your network all of a sudden is not what it used to be. And now you have to almost start from scratch and that requires a certain kind of motivation and, and, um, and, and just essentially just the drive to be able to make that happen. So shifting gears towards your brand at the moment. So Wit and Wire, um, why Wit and Wire? What is it like, where did you come up with the name? I'm just always curious about that. So when I started the business a few years ago, I knew I didn't only want to talk about podcasting. That was going to be the what, the thing that initially I felt I could help women do, especially because the technology can feel very daunting. If you've never launched a, pod, a podcast or done anything similar, it can feel like a big black box on the internet. But beyond that, I knew the person I wanted to serve and the person I wanted to help was somebody who wanted to earn money online, whether as a full-time online business owner or somebody who had something on the side and whether it was coaching or courses, this was a woman who wanted to earn money, not through digital products, but through knowledge, through the creator economy. And so when I started the business, I knew I wanted to pick a brand name that could speak to that person, even as the actual courses may evolve over time. And so I picked Wit and Wire instead of something like Melissa's podcasting business, because I knew I didn't want to have the word podcast in the title. And so Wit was more of a nod to a personal attribute. I feel like I have a dry sense of humor, but Wit is also about knowledge and wisdom. And then Wire was kind of my nod to how you might communicate it online to other people. All right. Very cool. And um, I, I don't know. I saw, I heard the statistic that now I think there's like 2 million podcasts out there or something like that. Right. Yeah. As of 2021, Apple announced that there are over 2 million active podcasts, which is an especially big deal because a year ago they passed 1 million. So yeah. it's not so much just about the number, but the rate. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there are stats beyond the big headline. And a big one is that of those podcasts, Amplify Media reported something like 43% of them have three episodes or fewer. Mm. So a lot of podcasts don't really last for the long haul. They maybe launch and then they don't continue or they were active a long time ago and they've stopped. And I think that it's not a sign of failure to stop your podcast. I don't think every podcast needs to be infinite to be successful, but I do think that the number alone, 2 million is not the full story. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely. I mean, I mean, as you know, and I know, it's a lot of uh, effort, a lot of kind of putting in the work and time-consuming. But you have to truly enjoy it and kind of, you know, like I was telling you before we start recording for us, like we just we said, let's just create content. We love it. We love talking to people. Let's start recording our conversations and sharing the knowledge and kind of insights with others. 
Um, so, so, and so moving into a little bit about uh, podcasting, why did you see an opportunity here uh, going into podcasting business? Like, how did that come about? So at the time I had already been hosting and producing podcasts for a few years. I had my own podcast just for fun called book smart about personal development books that started to grow pretty organically when we started to get picked up. And then based on the success of that podcast, I saw an opportunity at my full-time job at teachable where I pitched the CEO that we should have a podcast for the brand. It wasn't necessarily my job to do that, but I just mm -hmm. felt like it could be helpful to really show people what it was like to be an online business owner, instead of just talking about the features that you would need in a tool to create a course. So I had both of those podcasts under my belt. And then when I knew I wanted to start my own online business, I wanted to start by staying focused. And some of my strengths are teaching because I had been teaching for so long at General Assembly in New York. And I also feel like I have a knack for making complex techie things feel more attainable. And so the world of podcasting, I felt was one where I had the experience as a host, I had the background as a teacher, and I also had kind of the third secret sauce element of my full-time role as the director of marketing and teachable, where I could bring those skills together to really help more women launch podcasts. And at the time, some women were talking about podcasting, but to be honest, it was mostly white men. And I felt like I could enter the arena and present a literal new face. And then I really am still on a mission to amplify more diverse voices, not just in podcasting, but in online business. So I think that was a combination of just all the right elements for the, the very start of the business. Hmm. And so from your perspective, um, what do you see as the future of podcast? Let's say the next year, how, what, how do you see the space evolving and what are some opportunities available to individuals in the space? I think some of the big things that Apple and Spotify are doing are in the realm of, I'm going to call it creator monetization as well as engagement. So in 2021, Apple announced a feature called Apple paid subscriptions, which means that if you're listening to a podcast in your own app, if the host has enabled it, you may have the option to pay for additional locked content, or you may only see some episodes for free. This is a trend that is not just in podcasting Spotify soon followed but other social platforms like Instagram, TikTok, even YouTube, they all have built-in forms of creator monetization where more businesses are trying to figure out native ways for their creators to get paid by their followers, by their listeners. And so I think that's interesting because some trends make more sense for businesses of different sizes. And to me, the Apple subscriptions tool specifically makes way more sense for networks or bigger shows. Because the reality of podcast listening is that most people choose their own app. It isn't true that 100% of your listeners are on Apple. So when you create your episode, it's not going to serve you to tell people they have to go to Apple to unlock more content and pay you if they aren't already there. So for most independent podcasters, third-party tools like Patreon or our own businesses are still going to be more profitable. But I think that's an interesting future to consider. And then the other one Spotify is trying to pioneer is in-app engagement. So within the last few months, this is late 2021, Spotify rolled out features like in-app polling or other elements where you, the listener, could engage with the podcast based on what the host has put out for you. And they're also experimenting with video in Spotify. So I think it'll be interesting to see how engagement goes up because that's the big trend within the last year I've noticed is that while podcasting used to be more like radio, very one-way street, Nowadays, because of all the interaction online, there's a lot more two-way communication where you expect to be able to reach the host in different ways. So I think it'll be interesting to see how all of that continues to develop.
All right. And what do you think is the biggest mistakes that people make when it comes to podcasting? Uh, so many, but I mean that in a loving way where you just don't know. Like when I went into podcasting, you just don't know what you don't know. So yeah. I think a few of them, let's start from the perspective of somebody who hasn't started a podcast yet. I think a big mistake is that a lot of hosts rush right into launching. Like they try to record their first episode as quickly as possible and just release it, but then they haven't done anything to produce the next episode. And so something that you can do as a kindness to yourself is record a couple additional episodes before you launch. That way you're not immediately on a hamster wheel because that's one of the biggest reasons that people don't last more than those three episodes we talked about earlier. It's called pod fade. And then I think another thing that new hosts could do is consider not just what the topic of your podcast is, but who it's for. So too often, I think people want to be the podcast for everyone. And you look to celebrities and you see that they're just kind of talking about whatever, mm -hmm. but they are celebrities. They can do whatever they want yeah. because they have such a large audience. Instead, you want to become the go-to podcast for exactly your right listener. And so something I like to imagine is who would recommend this podcast to a friend? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have the clarity in your overall concept that somebody could recommend you to a friend, it's going to be tough to grow because all the successful hosts that I know credit word of mouth as a major sign of their growth and a cause of their success, I should say. So if your podcast is about, let's say yoga, even that is not specific enough because right. yoga is a topic, but depending on who it's for, is it for teenagers? Is it for hip pain? This ultimate listener will really shape the lens with which you create your content. So I think even more important than the topic is just getting clarity on who you're talking to. So those are some mistakes I would say that new hosts are making. Do we want to talk about maybe some experienced host mistakes that I see? Sure. Yeah. I would say the biggest one is around expectations for monetization, especially because when you look out and you see maybe your favorite bigger show, of course, they all have sponsors, yeah. but I think a lot of hosts go into podcasting, assuming that the road to money is step one, launch podcast. Step two, build up my audience. Step three, have a big enough audience that I could start to pitch sponsors. And then step four, start earning money. In reality, it may take you a long time to build up an audience. That's going to depend on how big your existing network or audience was when you started the podcast. Mm -hmm. So to me, the question isn't how long does it take to hit a certain audience size? Instead, I want to ask, how can I actually start earning money no matter my audience size and is sponsorship that lucrative? So that's the big mistake I see is that people come to me and they ask the question, how do I find sponsors? But the right question should be, how do I earn money podcasting? Because sponsorship is not going to be the most lucrative, even if you have a large show. If you have a business, using your podcast as a marketing channel to promote your own business, your own products and services is always gonna be more lucrative than trying to get sponsors. So if you wanna talk about your own business, my biggest recommendation there is that your episode should not feel like a giant infomercial. Instead, I would recommend finding a 30 second spot on your podcast, whether it is a traditional mid-roll or pre-roll ad, or you can include something in the outro at the end of an episode, mm -hmm. take a dedicated 30 second spot to give a very clear call to action about either something free on your website or a direct description of your business, because people will not only remember it more, but they'll respect it more because they won't feel like they're just being pitched for 30 minutes straight. Hmm. So many th interesting things you mentioned. So let me just uncover some of this. Um, one question I have is um, 
from from your experience with with podcasts, is there a length? Because I hear this all the time. Is there a length um, to it? Like are shorter ones better, or or does it depend on what you're talking about, your industry, the length of the podcast? I think it depends on who your listener is. If your listener is really busy, then giving her a one hour episode may not be the right fit. But overall, I've seen podcasts have huge success ranging from five minutes to an hour or even longer. But my general advice is that anything under an hour is what I would recommend for two reasons. One is that I think even psychologically, an hour and one minute feels so different than 59 minutes when I see an episode queued up. And then the other I would say more tactical reason is that if you reach a point where you want to outsource your editing, editors charge differently if your raw recordings are more than 60 minutes long. Mm -hmm. So I would say keep it under an hour. And then keep in mind too, if you're editing your own podcast, the longer the recording is, the longer your editing will take. So keep it under an hour, but anything in between there, I think is totally up to you. And is there any kind of topics that you see, you know, statistically more popular? Like, is it, is it specific business topics? Is it topics around personal development? Is there such a statistic? I don't think so. There are categories in yeah. Apple. Mm -hmm. So there are data points around which are the most crowded, which are the most popular. But to me, that doesn't indicate which have the most potential. To me, if you look around the internet, you look at YouTube, you look at blogs, you look at podcasts. If you see something out there that's similar to the topic that you want to talk about, that can validate demand for your concept. And I think my best advice around choosing a topic is that if you don't see your topic anywhere, that's a bigger red flag than if you see a lot of competition because competition validates demand. And the thing that will stand out about you is probably not coming up with a brand new topic that's never been done. It's applying your background or your perspective to an existing topic and then just deciding who you're for. Like my podcast is about podcasting. There are plenty of others that talk about podcasting. So I'm not the only one, but I have a specific background. I worked in tech startups. I've been in the online course industry. I'm talking to fellow online business owners. I also have my background as a teacher. So I think just certain qualities about my personality combined with my experience mean that some people prefer my show to other similar topics. So Look for the validation that the topic is out there in some form. It doesn't have to be a podcast, but I really do think that any topic could be a successful show. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm learning so much from this actually. Yeah, and I, and I think at the end of the day, it's just also depends on the style of the of the person. You know, you're gonna click with some people and not others. Uh, anything from the tone of their voice to to how they speak, etc. So that's interesting. Um, what do you, what do you see from like an entrepreneurship perspective? What is the biggest challenge for you as a sole entrepreneur? I think it's just deciding which tasks are worth my time and energy because you are a limited resource. You are your most valuable asset in your business. And so many strategies on the internet are good. So I think there's this misconception like, okay, my plan is to do the research and figure out the best strategy. What's the best idea. But when you start to do that research, you're going to find that there are many bests. There's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all business approach. Instead, you're going to have to decide what's right for you based on your personality and your strengths and the overlap of that circle in a Venn diagram with what is right for your audience. But there are tons of shiny objects out there. There are tons of trends that will always pop up. And on top of that, things will always change. So I think that the best mindset you can have as a business owner is to know that things will not go to plan and that things will change. And instead of seeing that as a failure, just see it as a part of the journey. And I think when I worked in live corporate events, 
a big thing that I learned is that no matter how meticulous you are, something will always go awry. And so now when something doesn't work in my business, I don't see it as a failure. I just see it as a strategy that didn't work in that moment. And I learned from it. So you have to be willing to separate yourself from the success of the business. Like my worth is not tied to how my business is doing, but I do think it's really tricky to know where do I spend my time and energy? And then second, just being able to separate yourself from the business and remember that if you're having an up month or a down month, that's not a reflection on who you are as a human. Absolutely. I mean, it's a roller coaster, this entrepreneurship journey. So you can easily go down the hole very quickly and stay there for a long time until, unless you, you, you learn to recognize that and pull yourself out. Absolutely. So where do you, where do you kind of, um, uh, I guess, who do you go to or where do you go to, 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 to have these conversations? Because I, like, I, I assume maybe you uh, either maybe have mentors or coaches. Do you, do you work with somebody? I'm asking only because for me, it's been so vital in my career and my business. Like I, I cannot, I don't know how people survive without it. I'm curious, like, mm-hmm. do you have any go-to kind of strategies when you're like, I'm just stuck? especially as a solo entrepreneur, like I'm just stuck. Like, do you have people you go to advice for books, resources? I think mentorship is an interesting topic because I have always been a reader. And so instead of having coaches, people who I was talking to maybe in person, I feel like books gave me a lot of mentorship and then online courses as well. And so for me, it just depends on what I'm trying to learn. Like when I was trying to learn SEO strategies, I sought out an expert and purchased a course and then went through it. And depending on the mindset I'm in, maybe a different book could be useful. So Mm -hmm. I'm very objective oriented, I guess, when it comes to mentorship and learning. And I'm also very self-directed, but I think that I still don't want to downplay the value of having humans in your life. Like throughout my work at Teachable and my professional career, I've just been really lucky to connect with other people who understand my industry and who I can lead on for support. But I do think that my biggest mentor have been the people whose online courses I have purchased and then gone through. And that's valid. I mean, absolutely. I I agree with you. I think that, I mean, you're not always going to be able to find a mentor, the right mentor that's going to be able to give you that advice. I think that, I mean, I also go to books and learning online. I mean, when, when my co-founder and I started our startup, we were like, we didn't know a lot of things. I mean, we don't know what we don't know, right? It's like a guessing game. We're just like, well, let's just experiment with this. And we had to teach ourselves everything because we couldn't afford necessarily to, to go and take, you know, specific courses with SEO. That's his thing. So he, he loves that part. Thank God, because I'm, I'm, I'm not that person. So, but it's, um, but yeah, so we, we had to teach her. I mean, I think we've watched every YouTube video about startups that there is, <laughs> you know, just to teach yourself. So yeah, I think mentorship comes beyond just that face-to-face interaction. I think it comes from books as well. So valid, valid point. And, and I think it's valuable for people to take away because again, you don't always have access to the right mentors. So I think books and online courses are probably your best bet. So that's great. Um, where do you hang out on social media these days? I'm on Instagram mostly. Social media for me is strictly professional. Like as a human outside of work, I don't use social media at all. So I use Instagram and decided that for me, it made most sense to just focus on only one platform instead of trying to be everywhere. And I do think, especially right now in 2021 with TikTok, Clubhouse, a lot of new apps have risen very quickly this year. And I think that more than ever, business owners may feel pressured or they may feel the pull of, should to be on all of those apps, but I don't think that's true. I think for me, at least quality over quantity is what has worked best for me. And so that's why I've stuck really almost exclusively to Instagram. Mm -hmm. I'm with you there. Um, 
I I uh, I I don't know how people. I don't even know how to use TikTok. I I I watch. <laughs> it's too complicated. It would take so much of my time to even you know. So I'm with you on that. Um, TikToks and and the snaps. I was never into it. Um, but but yeah, it's just, it's just interesting because you're right. Everybody there is a lot of pressure um, to kind of be everywhere and etc. And that brings a point of in terms of mentorships and like some people will be like, oh well, you should you should do X, Y, and Z. And then at the, at the end of the day, I think being objective, as you said earlier, and being able to kind of check with yourself and say what's the right thing for me and my business. I think that's essential um, because yeah, you can get lost very easily into these social media and it's such a time time consuming thing. Um, so where, um, if, so if you have, if you, if you had a magic wand, um, with your business or just in the world of podcasting, what would you like to see happen for my own business or in the world of podcasting? One and the other, give me both for my own business. I think that the thing all business owners crave, frankly, all podcasters as well is a consistently growing audience. And so if I could just have a magic inbound stream of leads. I think that that would be, I mean, that would be magic for sure. (laughs) Just exactly the right people coming into your world, because I really love the courses that I've created. I've put a lot of time and care into really trying to be helpful and to serve others. And so if I could just have more people come to me easily and consistently, that'd be amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And what about in the world of podcasting? So for podcasting, I think the trickiest part is that there isn't an algorithm. Let's compare that to YouTube. When you have a YouTube channel, you are in a search engine. YouTube has a search bar and people regularly go to YouTube to solve their problems and to find content. And even one step beyond that, Google owns YouTube. So when you Google something, some of the first results that come up are YouTube videos. Now having a YouTube channel has its pros and cons as well. So I don't think YouTube is a better or worse strategy than podcasting. I just think it's different and different things suit different people. Where I think podcasting is challenging is the fact that there's no algorithm. There's a big misconception as well there that people could somehow do really well in Apple, but the only charts in Apple are just the top podcasts in different categories, or they have an in, they're in a network with Apple. And so I would say that being on a chart in Apple is a sign of growth, not a cause of growth. There used to be different charts. Five years ago, there was something called new and noteworthy. It is still in Apple now, but it's much different. So I think people are trying to work this algorithm in a way that doesn't make sense. And in fact, most people find podcasts because they have been recommended by a friend. Maybe you're searching online and you just happen upon a podcast. It's more similar to how you find a blog or a business than it is how you may find somebody through a social media algorithm. So I think that's a misconception. On the plus though, podcasting really breeds trust and relationships because there are very few content mediums where people will pay attention to you for an hour straight and really get to know you and your personality. So Mm -hmm. podcast listeners are buyers. Before I said I could go to YouTube to solve a problem, but I may never go back to that creator ever again. I got my video, I got my question answered and I'm out. So podcasting, yeah, maybe it's harder to find listeners. And so my magic wand wish is that discoverability could be improved somehow in the world of podcasting, making it easier to find new shows and connect the right listeners with the right podcasts. But there is still a lot of good to be found because those relationships are so deep. All right. Good stuff. This is this is very valuable information. And let's let's hope these magic ones work. I love it. <laughs> I never knew actually about the, the I didn't I just didn't think about the algorithm part. You're absolutely right. It, it's uh it's it's uh, it's a different game on 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 these platforms. 
very interesting stuff. Uh, listen, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been really great to talk to you and learn more about you and hope we can have another conversation when some of those magic wands come true and we can revisit this. <laughs> I'll keep a lookout. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.